Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original pieces on our own website. Sign up for SubChina Access and you get all that and much more with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the latest on the trade war to the ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands, or by some estimates well over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from deep within the D.C. Beltway at the offices of the Brookings Institution, uh, where we are in their lovely studio here. Jeremy Goldcorn will be back next week. He's just gotten back uh, to his beloved Goldcorn holler after a well-earned vacation in New Zealand, and he pleads discombobulation. So, next time. The sharp downturn in the U.S.-China relationship has been one of the dominant themes of this show for a couple of years now. And in that time, we've examined it from a whole bunch of different angles, from trade, of course, and technology, and geopolitics, and what have you. Today, we're going to step back and look again at the uh, the big picture of the relationship. And we're joined by someone I've long wanted to invite onto the show, someone who's been at the forefront of efforts to lower the temperature and has been writing really gamely for American audiences about the urgent need to curb our more destructive passions when it comes to China. He's been a great source of courage for a lot of us who share these views. I'm talking, of course, about Ryan Hass, who's Rubenstein Fellow at the John L. Thornton Center here at Brookings. Uh, he's senior advisor at the Scowcroft Group and uh, very notably was the China director at the NSC during the second Obama administration. You might have heard Ryan a few months ago on one of the Seneca Network's other shows, the excellent China Econ Talk with Jordan Schneider. We are delighted that you could join us here on Seneca, Ryan. And uh, thanks for being such a stalwart and unwaveringly sensible voice in these difficult times. Kaiser, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure for me to be with you. Yeah, we're, we're, we're just totally psyched. Uh, so let's jump right in. I, I want to start by uh, looking at this claim that's now almost taking on the force of conventional wisdom, that there's some kind of consensus emerging on China, a, a convergence of views across the political aisle, uh, within the foreign policy community, and also even among China specialists. Uh, you argued in a piece that you wrote with Richard Bush called The China Debate is Here to Stay that this wasn't, in fact, the case. And I can definitely attest that despite a, a pretty clear shift in the get tougher on China direction, there's still quite a number of us, maybe even a majority, I think a majority, who aren't on board with the supposed consensus. Um, and you basically conclude that we should just buckle up, as you say at the end, because, you know, the debate is far from over. So uh, just this morning, I actually uh, read a political piece. I don't know how well sourced it is. I have no real idea. But um, that Joe Biden actually intends to challenge Trump on China policy, among other things, uh, which should be pretty interesting. So can you talk about the argument that you and Richard Bush made in that piece? Sure. So our basic argument is that there has been a consensus on China for a very long time. The consensus has transcended left-right boundaries. It's both Democratic and Republican. So it's therefore, it's not really bipartisan. The real area of divergence is between center-right and center-left in the American political spectrum right. and the polar ends of the political spectrum. So nationalists on the right and progressives on the left. And for 40 years... Center-right, center-left policymakers basically had their hands on the steering wheel of American policy towards China. That changed two years ago, and it's been a sort of bumpy jump from the center out to the polar ends. Now, uh, the Trump administration doesn't consider itself centrist. I don't consider it centrist. Yeah, They've taken not. a very <laughs> different uh, approach to China, and that is part of what we're seeing. But my argument is that there is a hardening of views inside the Beltway, and I feel that every day. Oh, boy. There isn't necessarily an American consensus on China. If we look at polling by Pew or by the Chicago Council or, or other reputable institutions, 
What we find is that most Americans don't think of China either as a partner or as a rival. They have mixed views of China. And as you said, uh, in the China-watching community that we live in, there is a very active debate going on. So this notion that the debate is over, everyone has converged behind some common view of uh, treating China as an adversary, I think is dramatically overstated. But let's talk about the atmosphere just here in D.C. I mean, it seems like everyone I talk to who comes away from meetings here is just pretty shocked at the stridency uh, that's really kind of taken hold here. Uh, So give us a sense of what it's like from, from within here. Well, the Trump administration is definitely taking a different tack. And I think part of what we're seeing is the power of the bully pulpit. The, the president and the White House do have an uh, incredible power to shape views of China. Uh, I think that China's behavior has fed into this. Uh, China has become more repressive at home, more assertive abroad, and it's created a lot of frustration. Absolutely. And the previous check on these instincts was the business community. After Tiananmen Square, it was the business community that lobbied President Clinton to take a more centrist approach to China. And over a period of time, he moved in that direction. Now the business community is feeling less motivated, I would say, to play that same role again because their sense is that President Xi is less committed as a reformer mm-hmm. and is more determined to freeze in place an unequal playing field that advantages Chinese firms at the expense of American firms. It also seems to me that, that part of the reason for the defection of what was a kind of reliable ballast in the relationship of the business community is the growing power within that community of particular tech companies that it's the technology companies who not only are they sort of the sexiest and, and the, the, those, the avant-garde of, of American business internationally now, they're also the ones who are hit hardest by some of China's policies who have the least at, at this point to lose uh, by, by pursuing a harder policy. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you think that there's anything to that? Oh, Kaiser, I think you're, I think you're really on to something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, I think a lot of Americans associate the tech community with sort of the comparative advantage of the United States in the international system. And they see the American tech industry being disadvantaged in China. You can't go to China and use Google. You can't uh, use Twitter. And there's a, a range of examples that we could use to point out that China really doesn't treat these companies fairly. Yeah. The one caution I would offer, though, is that sometimes we're accustomed to talking about the business community in aggregate terms as in the business, and I do this sometimes too, but the business community feels this way about China. I think that that's a gross generalization. Of course, of course. I think you need to really break it down into companies that sell into the China market mm-hmm. who are very invested in their relationships in China. Companies that... John Deere and Caterpillar. Yeah, and you, right? yeah companies that companies. feel uh, benefit by supply chain efficiencies mm-hmm. by being in China. Apple Com- and what have you. Right. Uh, companies that rely on technology that is available in China, the ecosystem, and I would include Apple in this as well, and then companies that use China to go to other markets. And it's that latter group, China that that produce in China to export to other markets, that I think is the group that is most open to relocating if the cost of doing business there becomes prohibitive. That's right. But that's one of four segments that we just talked about. These tend to be sort of light manufacturing. These are sort of labor rather than capital-intensive companies, and they go to Vietnam or to Indonesia without breaking a sweat. Exactly. That's uh, that's that's very well observed. Uh, so at the heart of the issue, you know, within this China specialist world, I mean, we, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, it strikes me that there's this one basic question, which is at the heart of it all, which is, has engagement with China been a failure? Um, and I, I find we can't often get anywhere in debates over this because we just can't agree on what the proponents of engagement actually thought it was supposed to achieve in the first place. So, I mean, as to me, I mean, I'm an unapologetic proponent of engagement, always have been. Um, I always feel like the other side keeps erecting the same straw man. Uh, they claim that proponents thought that engagement was going to turn China into some pluralist democracy and, and with, you know, robust rule of law and, and a high respect for human rights. And was that what we were claiming? Was that what this side has ever really claimed? Or am I right that that's a straw man? Uh, I think you're right that that's a straw man. The The way that I see it, Kaiser, is that this argument came out at an opportune time when uh, people were growing increasingly frustrated about China's behavior. And when we elect, had just elected a president who was committed to shaking up the old order and creating something new. And into that vacuum, this argument emerged. Uh, this argument really gave intellectual cover for President Trump to shatter 40 years of policy towards China. 
And it was premised on, as you said, this idea that U.S. policy was animated by some Gazi theory that there would be convergence between the United States and China. That is, we engaged China and China grew economically, that they would become more like us or become more like Switzerland. I have the opportunity on a regular basis to interact with the custodians of the U.S.-China relationship for the past 40 years. Mm -hmm. And I have yet to encounter a single one of them that felt that U.S. policy or strategy was animated by this convergence theory. Right. Uh, these were people that understood who they were working with. They understood that Chinese were committed communists, determined to protect their political system, and that our goals weren't to change China's political system. They were to mellow China's international behavior. Right. They were to elicit better cooperation from China on issues that we cared about. They were to encourage the Communist Party to do more to protect the rights of its citizens and to try to bound China to the existing international order exactly. that we had established so that they felt the peer pressure of membership in it. That was the animating focus of U.S. policy. So when people make this argument that engagement failed, I sometimes question where, where exactly it failed. And I think it's also important to look back to where we were before engagement. So if you sort of dial the record back before 1972, we were looking at a China that was saber-rattling on Taiwan, that was exporting its ideology sure. actively, that was invading its neighbors, that was aggressively seeking to isolate American allies like South Korea and Israel, and that was a serial proliferator on the world stage. So that's... And this wasn't just... It didn't end in 72. I mean, this was... We we're talking about, you know, still well into the late 70s. Right? right, right. And so, you know, if engagement failed, the logical conclusion is that we should disengage. <laughs> and uh, I guess my question is, is that going to enhance our ability to influence how China identifies and pursues its interest? Is that going to bring allies along with us in coming to common cause on dealing with China? I don't think so. And so um, while I understand the sort of seductiveness of the argument that, that uh, engagement failed, I'm, I'm not yet persuaded that that is uh, a conclusion that we should draw. The irony is that the engagement failed argument that was, I think I heard it first advanced by Jim Mann in that book, um, China Fantasy. I, I, that was written in a time when I think it was conspicuous that, that engagement had succeeded. I mean, if if you wrote that, he as he did, he wrote that book in two thousand eight, I think, or seven even. Uh, I don't know how you could have stood in two thousand seven or two thousand eight and looked around you at China then and concluded that an engagement had been a failure. I mean, I can see a better argument for it now in Xi Jinping's time. Uh, certainly, you know, because of well, you know, what I used to call the new truculence, and now just the plain old freaking truculence. But uh, of course, it's gotten um, you know bad. But look, they never come up with the counterfactual. They never they never satisfactorily answer that, which I think I, I always want to insist on. What would China have looked like had we not pursued that policy? I mean, would it be North Korea times four hundred? You know, the, mm -hmm. the population, mm -hmm. and that's that's you know what I can largely conclude. Um, because you know, at any time that we've we've sort of advanced the argument for engagement, whether it's in seventy two or in seventy nine, uh, which I guess is the, the year roughly when you were born. I mean, you're you're like forty at. at at, you're at, betraying my uh, age no, no, here. That's, yeah. uh, you're very lucky to be so young. <laughs> uh, or you know, in the Clinton years during the PNTR debates uh, and WTO accession. I mean, I think there's been improvement along every measure. If you look at, I mean, there's almost no measure where you can look at China and not say that engagement actually has worked. Right. I mean, is it a, a more deliberative society than it was? Yes. Is it a more personally free society? Yes. Is there, has rule of law advanced? Yes. Has civil society advanced? Yes. Has the public sphere grown? Well, in recent years, no. But, in, you know, by, by 2007-8 when we were talking about, absolutely yes. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm not one to engage in pop psychological you know, speculation here, but um, especially when you want to project it onto a national level. But it, it's hard for me not to, to, uh, to want to factor in the kind of the psychological moment that we're in uh, as a nation that, you know, the fact that we've just never faced a multidimensional peer competitor like we do in China today. And it's looming up at a moment when we're feeling kind of unsteady about our own politics. I mean, it, it really poses challenges to all these 
axiomatic assumptions that we've had about the way the world works, about the relationships between you know technology and authoritarian states, and between you know innovation and and authoritarianism. Um, so, what's your take on this? I mean, are we should we even bother thinking about sort of the moment we're in, the psychology of it? Oh, I think it's important for us to come to a diagnosis of the moment that we're in. If I could just go back briefly to something that you said. I think that sometimes uh, people who are reluctant to embrace the idea that engagement failed are perceived as naively believing that everything is rosy in China or in the U.S.-China relationship. And I I would just like to puncture that a little bit because I have profound concerns about China's behavior. uh, And I have real concerns about the U.S.-China relationship. So I don't I don't have this rose tinted view that uh, if we just went back to engagement everything would work out of course fine. Not. Right. It's uh, it's always you know it's a trade off. What is the better path to most effectively influence Chinese behavior in the direction that we seek? And I continue to be persuaded that um, that continuing to work at it through direct engagement with the Chinese at authoritative levels is the most effective approach. But to your question, Kaiser, about the moment that we're in, I personally think that we're in the most precarious moment in the U.S.-China relationship that we've been in since 1979 or perhaps 1972. Yeah. And part of the issue is that neither the U.S. or China have a common diagnosis of what the problem is. What I hear when I travel to China and listen to my friends talk is that the United States is a declining power that's anxious about uh, China's relative rise and is trying to keep China down as long as it can to preserve its privileged position. When I talk to my friends in the government now in Washington, they have a very different view, that uh, it's China that has stepped back from the path of reform and opening, that has uh, become deaf to the concerns that we've raised with them on uh, market access and, th- and things like that, and that has become more aggressive abroad and repressive at home. So that's a, that's a real danger. This other, the other point that I just want to put on the table for, for your reaction is that I think that this is a different downturn than any that we've experienced before. In 1989, in 1996, in 1999, there were events that precipitated a downturn in the relationship. Right. There is no singular event that once it's resolved or we work past will allow us to move forward. In other words, this isn't a cyclical downturn. This feels more like a structural hardening of, uh, of animosities. And do you think that this, it's, it's structural beyond even the – well, if it is structural, then it transcends – who sits in power in both of these these countries. It's not a Trump and Xi Jinping phenomenon then. That would be my view. I don't think that this is associated with the personalities of the two leaders in each country. Right, and and neither do I. I mean, I think that the downturn was discernible in 2009. Yeah. I think that it was, you know, it, it's really the second Hu Jintao and Jalal administration where we started to see this uh, start to really happen. What is this then? What are we in? Uh, is this is this a, a, a new Cold War? Is as some people have claimed. I mean, we get a lot of pushback to that idea. What do you think? What do you, are you ready to declare this a new Cold War? I'm not comfortable with that. Um, as I think back on the Cold War, I think about proxy wars. They don't exist now. Yeah. I think about fears of imminent nuclear attack. No children in the United States that I'm aware of are practicing how to, you know, sit out a a surprise nuclear strike right now. Uh, I think of it in terms of um, building blocks to compete against each other. There are no countries in the world that want to align with the United States to oppose China. Uh, I think about it in terms of the deep interconnection that exists economically and socially between the United States and China, which is fundamentally distinct from the existence of the Cold War. So I think that uh, the Cold War analogies are flawed in many respects. And my worry is that using bad historical analogies will lead to bad policy decisions. That's right. That's right. Uh, something I wanted to ask you when we were talking about the the, the chill here in D.C. or how how did up it's gotten. What about in the rest of the country? As you travel the rest of the country, if you talk to people, you know, uh, to, to governors or mayors of cities, you talk to uh, business leaders outside of the Beltway, my distinct sense is, you know, because I do a lot of traveling, I do a lot of speaking, I, 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 you know, talk to a lot of people, that they're they're really sort of shocked and surprised at, at what's happening in D.C. Is this a D.C. phenomenon? Yeah, I, it's a good question. I have a similar impression when I travel around the country. I still get the impression in most of my interactions that uh, governors and mayors largely look at China as an opportunity, uh, and more so as an opportunity than as a risk. Uh, now, 
it's difficult to make generalizations about the United States. It's a complex place. But um, at the moment, my strong impression is that there is much more of a hardening of views inside the Beltway than there is outside of it. Yeah, yeah. That that seems to yeah that that jives with what I've what I've observed too. So I'm, I'm trying to think of a way to ask this question without people assuming that I'm wearing a tinfoil hat. I know you are. I see. I mean, I don't know how that's comfortable at all. But anyway, uh, but but you know, you're a Washington insider. You've served you know in a senior position at NSC. So I suspect you you're gonna have a smart take on this. But uh, to what extent is this downturn in U.S.-China relations driven by, or maybe even perpetuated by, uh, the exigencies of the military-industrial complex? I mean, I really don't want to sound conspiratorial, but I think I'd be naive if I didn't at least consider this as a, a possible factor. You know, there is. A lot of money at stake, Pentagon budgets and what have you. Uh, is, it, is this the military industrial or even the intelligence industrial complex that, that is driving this China as a threat kind of narrative? I, you've called it what, the threat industrial complex? <laughs> yeah, I, I think of it more as a threat industrial complex than a defense industrial complex. But uh, there are a lot of people who have various motivations for playing up the threat uh, from China to the United States. And I think that it comes from a couple of sources. Uh, some people generally have anxieties about democratic systems and they feel that authoritarianism is on the march, democracy is in decline, and from a systems competition perspective, they just worry that uh, we are going to be entering a world that is less hospitable to our form of government. Mm -hmm. I think that there are some people who are declinists. They are deeply anxious that the United States is in decline and that China is in ascent, and they want to try to arrest that trend. I would just suggest that this is the sixth bout of declinism that the United States has faced in the last <laughs> 60 years, so this isn't a new thing. We've, no. we've been through this before. Uh, and then there are some people who uh, I think, uh, as Graham Allison has suggested, are worried about this Thucydides trap, this idea that a rising power in a uh, existing power will come into clash with each other as they precisely seventy three point five percent of the or whatever it is that he comes up with right right so um, overdetermined historical sort of yeah thing. so I think that there are sort of a lot of factors that feed into this but when you put it all together there is a clearly a strong impulse inside the Beltway to see China as a menacing threat. I mean the argument that a lot of us are trying to advance that you know ultimately if we decide to keep going down this path. Uh, even if we're in some sense justified in doing so, even if you know illiberal regimes as they are are on on the march these days, um, it's ultimately worse for everyone. Uh, that's the argument we're advancing, and it seems to be a, an increasingly difficult one for us to make. It's it's after all, I mean, it's impossible not to lay a lot of the blame squarely at, at Beijing's feet. I mean, its behavior. I mean, we're not just talking about you know the kind of anti-competitive um, you know subsidies or the industrial policy or. IP theft or, you know, uh, mercantilist protectionist policies that they, they pursue. And they do. Uh, but there, there are also some huge, glaring, unequivocal moral issues in play. And the one that's driving people, I think, who might otherwise be prone to cut China slack uh, is, of course, Xinjiang. Um, what what is happening there? I mean, there is a consensus among people who are on, you know, quote, unquote, our side of this, that what Beijing is doing right now with the, the massive extra-legal detention of Uyghurs and the other Muslims, it's just indefensible, full stop. Um, so what's the best way for us to, to address this? I mean, is there a persuasive case that can be made that a hawkish approach is going to just sort of galvanize China, that they're just going to, to – and, and that maybe some form of uh, – you know, that, that we should rely on good old diplomacy and uh, engagement to, to try to back China down on this? Yeah, Kaiser, you've raised a really important issue. Um, when I was working in U.S. Embassy Beijing, one of my jobs was to be the virtual presence post officer for Xinjiang, which oh, meant wow. that I was responsible for going out and conducting outreach. Uh, and you were there in 09. Yes, throughout Xinjiang. And so this isn't just an abstraction for me. This is a personal issue. Uh, I have friends that live in Xinjiang, friends whose families have been deeply affected by by what's going on, and I'm saddened and I'm angered yeah. by what's going on. It's It's absolutely tragic and, in my view, indefensible. Um, but anger and outrage isn't going to solve this problem. 
And so I think that a, a bit of uh, clarity of thought is is needed at this moment. I'll offer a few ideas. I'd love to hear your thoughts and reactions to them. But the first is, I think we need to keep an unblinking eye on what's going on in Xinjiang and try to expose as many of the facts as possible so that uh, we can all operate from a common understanding of events on the ground Absolutely. in Xinjiang. Uh, second, I think we need to recognize that the United States is not going to solve this problem unilaterally with China. The United States is not going to impose its will on China to compel it to change by itself. And what that means is uh, I think that in order to really get Beijing's attention on this issue, to show how deeply and profoundly we, we care about it, we need to continue to raise the issue privately and publicly through bilateral channels. Uh, but we also need to make sure that we help build a chorus from other countries in the world that share similar concerns. Especially Muslim countries, I would, I would expect. Especially Muslim countries. And so that's going to require hard work, determined diplomacy. It's going to take time. But over a period of time, hopefully, we can help persuade enough people in leadership positions in Beijing that the reputational costs of the course that they're on uh, exceed any perceived benefit. And I would also argue that uh, the, the path that they're on is contrary to their stated objective yeah, of trying yeah. to promote stability and what I guess they call it social harmony in Xinjiang. This isn't, this isn't the path that leads to that outcome. I, I just had lunch with Nuri Tsirkal this, this, this afternoon, um, who of course is a, a you know, leader, a founder of the Uyghur Human Rights Project. And he was saying that, look, this is either way this goes, it, Beijing loses. If they, if they, you know, if they, either they, they successfully, whatever the hell that means, um, manage to, to, and then, then they are simply guilty of cultural genocide, right? Either that, or if, what are they going to do? Let them all go? I mean, I think that the, the game plan, unfortunately, is to, to uh, ratchet it down, but slowly enough so that they have the, the apparatus of, of sort of surveillance and coercion in place for when they are returned. And that's, that's not a pretty outcome either. It's, it's, they're really in their backs to a wall right now. It's very dangerous. But uh, we do need to give them a chance to step down with something approximating grace. Um, approximating grace. I mean, it's not going to happen. It's, it's horrifying. Uh, you know, when I, when I, I think about, oh, Christ, I mean, it's, it's, it's just so damn depressing. But it, it makes it really hard. And when you are less than fully unequivocal about about your condemnation of this somehow. If you're not absolutely full-throated and if you do follow it up with caveats almost or, or, or pragmatic approaches like how are we going to actually – we get accused of being – of lacking moral clarity on this. Right. And it's it's a really uncomfortable place to be. Uh, yeah. Because I, it is. There is – there is this is a pretty black and white issue. Right. I think part of the challenge that we're running up against as well is that the vice president has been fairly clear on this issue. Secretary Pompeo has been very clear on this issue. State Department officials have been clear on this issue. The president has not. Hmm. Um, I don't recall an instance in which the president has raised this issue. And in our system, when the president is indifferent to an issue, it uh, makes it easier for Beijing to discount the seriousness of our concern. Well, you know, the, the problem is that there are a lot of strange ideas that emanate from this administration, including from our State Department. Uh, not long ago, uh, the State Department's director of policy planning, Kyron Skinner, uh, was chatting with a former a person who had formerly held, held that same position, uh, who's now at New America, Anne-Marie Slaughter. And she said some pretty controversial things. She talked about uh, this being sort of the, the first great power competition with a non-Caucasian uh, power. She talked about sort of invoking Samuel Huntington, uh, clash of civilizations. What, what, did, what was your reaction to that? What did you make of that? To be honest, Kaiser, I was appalled that yeah. a senior American official would use those words to describe the nature of competition that the United States has with China. Racial theories of strategic competition shouldn't be part of the American lexicon. That's right. Uh, we have problems and concerns with the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party and the direction that they're taking China. We don't have issues with the Chinese people. This isn't a racial uh, uh, issue for us with China, and it shouldn't be. Uh, that remark was made over a month ago. It would have been easy for someone at the State Department to clean it up, to clarify what she really meant was right. X, Y, or Z. It troubles me that over the past month, I've had multiple people from government reach out to me privately to try to explain that that isn't how the U.S. government is thinking about China. But no one has done this publicly. Hmm. And as long as that remains out there 
as the statement of record, it's going to remain an open wound in the U.S.-China relationship. I've been in uh, Beijing twice since that comment was made, and it's come up in every meeting. Uh, and so I just hope that sooner or later that uh, someone takes the effort to clean it up so that we can move forward. Speaking of your meetings in China, uh, you mentioned just now that that when you talk to your interlocutors there, uh, they're of the mind that China, uh, that the United States' game plan essentially is to thwart China's rise, to keep China down, that everything is sort of you know part of this new policy of containment that's that's going on here. I, I always feel like, you know, trying to channel China's views of things to trying to try to sort of step into their shoes and exercise a little cognitive empathy is a really good approach. So maybe you can take a few minutes or as long as you need to um, to flesh that out a little bit. Um, give our listeners your take on how Beijing sees things through its own lens, uh, given its own assumptions. Well, I can offer sort of a, a near-term perspective and then a, a longer-term perspective. Over the near-term my sense is that in the last month or so, uh, the debate inside China has closed on whether or not the United States and China are struggling over trade issues or over existential issues about United States seeking to suppress China's rise. And it's existential. And uh, the Chinese, broadly speaking, have convinced themselves of their narrative that we are in an existential struggle, which is going to make compromise harder to find. Um, at a broader level, my sense is that... Uh, President Xi and the top leadership of the Chinese Communist Party's foremost concern is preserving the role of the Chinese Communist Party as the uh, indisputed leader of, of China. Sure. Uh, I've had a chance to join many meetings with President Xi, and, and the issue that most animates him in those conversations, the most memorable interactions, all go back to this question. What is it that he is most worried about? What is it that he's most determined to achieve? That's it. Yeah. Um, but if you sort of go beyond that... Uh, I think that China is trying to get to a point where they're strong, wealthy, and respected in the international system. I think that they want uh, to reach a point where they have a leadership role in the international system and where countries feel the need to be deferential to China on China's stated core interests. So, I mean, you were there during the, the, the period of the Arab Spring uprisings. You were there when this idea hardened in, in Beijing uh, that was really, I think, best represented by that document, document number nine, that the United States had them in their sights, that they were that they were the next target for a sort of Arab Spring-style regime change program. And they had their, their boogeymen. Um, they, 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 they looked at, uh, at the sort of Samantha Powers and Susan Rice axis, and, and they believed that this was the in, intention. Um, now, I mean, it, it's it's maybe changed a little bit under the Trump administration. The the new fear right now is is about a new Plaza Accord. The the fear is, I think that, um, and and you know, I, it's hard for me to look at this situation right now. And, and when I when I do try to channel Beijing, not to see a certain logic to how they they see things, not to to see that they're not being crazy and paranoid, that this is how I, I might see things too, where I'm really standing in those shoes. Um, I mean, you can see how given Huawei, given the stepped up phone ops, given you know arms sales now to Taiwan, and, and of course, all those F-35s to Japan, there's, there's, a, there's a worry about, about, you know, this is a new kind of containment. Um, is, is that an unreasonable conclusion for China to draw? <laughs> Uh, there was a point in time when I could say confidently, yes, that that is an unreasonable conclusion for Beijing to draw because the United States doesn't seek to contain China, that we welcome the rise of a stable, peaceful, and prosperous China, and we see that as being in our long-term And And Obama said that many interest. times and meant it sincerely. I, I believe that. He really did. He uh, Many times I heard him utter those very words. Right. Uh, and I agree. He did mean it. We all meant it. That's what we thought was in our long-term interest. It's harder for me to make that same case credibly anymore. Hmm. Uh, my sense is that the Trump administration's approach to China is animated by a couple of assumptions. Uh, the first is that uh, it's both possible and necessary for the United States to maintain military primacy in Asia. Uh, the second is that the Trump administration believes that it will be easy to win a trade war at a low cost to the United States. Uh, the third is that uh, President Xi is brittle, the Chinese economy is weak, and they can't afford too much or too prolonged of tensions with the United States. And then the fourth is that if push comes to shove, if things really get sporty, that all of our allies and partners will have our back and be standing right behind us in, in challenging and confronting China. And I would just simply 
challenge all four of all those. All four of those, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so uh, I think that's the uh, that's the wellspring from which American policy towards China right now flows. And um, at this point, we're three years into an administration. I think that views have pretty well hardened. It's going to be hard to see uh, uh, this administration dramatically uh, shift away from the course that they're on. Even thinking beyond this administration, so we elect somebody who who is a, a more reasonable uh, view toward China. How then do we signal to China that uh, what our NGOs go on to keep saying, what our editorial writers print, uh, what uh, some of the more hawkish elements in our sort of public intellectual sphere keep saying – that, that that doesn't represent well, – I mean because we've always had that difficulty. You had that difficulty during the Obama administration when things were, were actually you know a whole lot better uh, and it was difficult to allay Chinese suspicions then. And now with, with uh, the Trump administration in, in the rearview mirror, inshallah, uh, that, that um, you know, how, uh, how will China ever trust that that won't happen again, that, that it, what the entire fate of the bilateral relationship is just sort of – on the coin toss of this 4951 American electorate? Well, it's going to take time. Uh, and there are no silver bolt solutions or easy fixes to put the relationship back on a productive track. It's going to just no, simply not. take time. I guess the only thing I would say is that, yes, I agree that the Chinese have deeply held suspicions and paranoias about American intentions towards them. But they've had that from the start. And we were able to manage the relationship even in spite of those paranoias for 40 years. And so uh, I, I guess I just am reluctant to accept the fatalism that uh, seems to be so enrapturing right. uh, the Beltway right now that it's impossible for our two countries or systems to coexist with each other because they're just fundamentally at odds. Well, I appreciate you giving us all that courage. I know that either of the two questions to follow is, you know, merits book length treatment. Uh, let's see what you can do in two minutes each. Uh, first of all, and you, you've hinted at this already, what, if anything, is China's grand strategy? And, and what are the immediate implications for the U.S. and its position in the Western Pacific and, and even globally? I mean, you, you, you talked about one component of it, which is obviously the Chinese uh, leadership's desire to keep the Chinese Communist Party in power. Yeah, that serves – some people see it as the end, but I see that uh, in, in their own thinking anyway – as a critical piece of a larger strategy, which mm -hmm. is about national... National rejuvenation. Right. Right. Uh, I think that President Xi's view is that uh, to maintain the Communist Party's role, there must be a strong country. A strong country requires a strong party. A strong party relies on a strong leader that sits at the core. Hence, Xi Jinping. circular, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> and so that's the, the argument that I think he's most fond of using. Uh, in terms of grand strategy... Um, you know, there's a lot, uh, a lot of discourse about China's grand strategy. There's a lot of suspicion or intrigue about whether there's a hundred-year plan or some <laughs> secret document that's hidden in a vault deep in Zhongnanhai that uh, you know only a privileged few are able to see that maps out uh, every step that the Chinese will take. My sense is that China is working along a continuum towards a goal on the horizon, which is basically what we've talked about before, which is being uh, respected as a world leader and as a leader in Asia, uh, and having countries deferential to it on matters that it most cares about, um, the, the role of the party, territorial integrity, and China's social and governance system. Uh, More concretely, though, let's talk about things like the geographic extent of China's intention to project power. Yeah, I think that China wants to build strategic depth. They would like to push the United States out past the first island chain, and you know, if it was up to them, they would probably welcome us being outside of the second island chain as well. Um, but in practical terms, you know, what that means is that the U.S. Navy and Air Force is going to have to get comfortable operating uh, in more risky environments and, uh, and accept a certain degree of risk because I think it's fundamental to American strategy for us to continue to operate inside the first island chain. Uh, you know, our, our, the credibility of our alliance commitments hinges mm -hmm. in part on that. And it also uh, is critical to our other strategic objective of keeping uh, free and open commerce and freedom of navigation and overflight, but also preventing a hostile hegemon from dominating Asia, which has been a pillar of American strategy for decades. Right. And you think that this is possible, that, that, that simply accepting operating in a riskier environment, knowing full well that, that, that uh, there are going to be close brushes. I mean, what, what do we do? Uh, what are our contingencies? What, what do we 
What do we set up in terms of hotlines and and um, is any of this infrastructure in place right now? I mean, this is what I worry most about. It's a great question, Kaiser, and it's something that I worry a lot about as well. I, I wish I could tell you with confidence that this is all going to work out fine and, and uh, <laughs> both the United States and China can coexist peacefully into the future. The, the honest answer is I don't know. That is sort of the, the crux of the strategic question that we're all grappling with. Um, but here's what I do know, that it would be devastating for the United States and it would be devastating for China if either one of us entered into conflict with the other. Right. And so – we're two, I mean, broadly speaking, we're two very sophisticated countries uh, with highly, typically highly competent governments. We should be able to figure this out. We should be able to work through this. Uh, yes, there will be points of tension. Uh, the Chinese don't like us operating inside the first island chain. We feel it's necessary. Um, but how do we work it out? We work it out by doing things like we did in 2014. We establish uh, confidence building measures so that when our ships or our planes are operating in near proximity to each other, they know how to communicate with each other, what the protocols are to avoid uh, accidental crisis. And I think that we need to take that template and build it out to other ungoverned areas that have the highest risk of escalation. So I'm thinking about things like space, uh, like undersea, uh, in the cyber realm, we need to have more clarity on the rules of the road for how sure. we both operate in cyber. And that's that's what I would like to see the United States and China do going forward, is to build guardrails around competition so that we can manage this. Guardrails is, is the, right, the right concept. Um, again, you know, sort of channeling China, you, you look at, at something like the Strait of Malacca, and which is you know sort of the justification has always been the justification for China's presence and for its claims, you know, uh, the, the Nine Dash Line, for its building of artificial islands and all, all that stuff, and and we've tended to be dismissive of this idea that the United States would put its hand on China's throat and choke, and yet right now we're seeing that happen. It's not with oil, but it's it's in the digital world, right? Uh, I I can. I'm I'm somewhat empathetic. I'm you know very empathetic and maybe even you know a tinge of of sympathetic to the Chinese concern over this when they look at what's happened with Huawei. Yeah. Thoughts on that? I don't know. <laughs> sure. On, so I think that there are three big things happening in the tech space simultaneously right now. The the first is that the United States and China are racing ahead of the rest of the world. And there are a lot of ways to measure this, but if you look at the top internet companies in the world. Oh, sure. Somewhere between 16 and 20 out of the top 20 are in China and the United States. If you look at where the windfall from artificial intelligence is projected to go over the next decade and a half, Absolutely. it's 70% of it will go to the United States and China. So both the United States and China are gaining a disproportionate share of the benefit from the tech technology revolution that's underway. So that's the first trend. The second trend is that U.S. and Chinese researchers are collaborating more and more in deeper and deeper fields than they have in the past. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of an uncomfortable reality for the decouplers in inside the United States. It, right. I was in China when the Huawei announcement was made to, to place Huawei on the entities list. And on the next page of the newspaper, there was an article about how Microsoft is opening the largest ever R&D center for artificial intelligence research in Shanghai. So wow. there's, you know, there's a lot of discordance, which leads me to the third trend which is happening, which is at the government level, the U.S. and Chinese government are sort of waging a pitched battle with each other, uh, dueling entity lists, uh, in increasing investment restrictions, and threatening um, to sever some of the educational links and research links that, uh, that exist. And so all three of these things are happening at the same time. Uh, the question that I think we all have is which one of these trends will be the dominant trend, and we don't know the answer to that yet. But uh, I, I mention all that to say that uh, sometimes I think that we tend to focus on the brightest, shiniest object, which is the government action towards China or vice versa, right. and that sort of underplays the, the other dimension. Number two, which is yeah. a wonderful trend, the one that we want, and all that fertile cross-pollination that's happened. And it's not a recent phenomenon either. I mean, this has really happened for a long time. Since, you know, the first stirrings of the Chinese internet, look where the money came from, look what capital markets they went to, look where the internet entrepreneurs were educated. I mean, there was American DNA in all of these companies, and it's, it's really unfortunate that... You know, there's so many best practices learned. Uh, there were, God, you know, a lot of people groan about Sarbanes-Oxley, but my God, Chinese corporate governance benefited an awful lot from, from you know, their desire to list on NASDAQ uh, right. and uh, to continue to report to the SEC. It's, it's, it's a, a genuine goddamn tragedy. I asked you about, um, about Chinese grand strategy. 
let's let's ask about the other side. Is there something approximating grad strategy in the United States right now in 2019? And I mean, has have we had one really since the c- containment and the collapse of, of, of Soviet communism? Well, um, in 2019, it's sort of tough to say, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, generally speaking, I think that there has been a grand strategy that animates the United States approach to the world. And it, at its core, it's an effort to you know, foster a world that is hospitable to American leadership. That's, that's what it's all about. And the consistent threads of that have been trying to protect ourselves and our allies from attack, so physical security. Um, trying to promote the sources of American prosperity, and this is where, you know, trade liberalization and expanding export opportunities has has played in, and then also trying to promote democracy, universal values, and rule of law. So those have sort of been the three legs of the stool of American grand strategy. Where, the where world. would you put institutions like Bretton Woods institutions? I would put them in, in uh, number two. In number two, sure. Yeah. Um, now. In 2019, it's a little bit less clear if those are those remain the animating elements. Right now, uh, if you read the national security strategy and the national defense strategy, the the real core of the argument is around great power competition. Right. And um, the the question that feels to me like it's a bit left a little bit unanswered is great power competition for what? You know, competition isn't a strategy. Right. Um, so what is it that we're trying to achieve? And that's. That's something that I think that uh, Maga man, Maga baby. <laughs> this this administration maybe hasn't yet uh, fully fleshed out. Ryan, we've we've talked a lot about competition between the two great powers right now. Uh, let's talk about competitiveness, uh, specifically about American competitiveness, and what you think we should be doing to restore or to to invigorate American competitiveness, because you know this is, uh, f- however it, it it shakes out it's going to be an increasingly competitive relationship, right? Kaiser, I'm really glad we're zeroing in on this question of competitiveness. You know, I've spent a lot of time in this podcast talking about how the United States is taking a more combative approach towards China. But just to be clear, I'm not confused about the sources of many of the challenges in the relationship right now. I've spent the better part of the past decade warning Chinese officials that if we don't find better ways to address real American concerns like intellectual property theft, cyber issues, maritime issues, human rights issues, and, and the whole gambit, the relationship would move in a more downward spiral. And unfortunately, that's what's happening. The relationship's heading downward right now. For me, the core question, though, isn't whether we as Americans should feel righteous in our indignation of certain Chinese behaviors, but really, what, what should we be doing about it? And at the moment, it seems like we're very focused on the threat China poses to us and on working to slow China down. We're trying to dole the appeal of the Belt and Road Initiative, to damage the attraction of Huawei, to degrade China's ability to develop its tech sector, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, we're playing a lot of defense at the moment. I want to see us, as the United States, get back to playing offense in our competition with China. If we focus on what we need to do to advance America's security and prosperity, I'm very confident we'll be well served to compete against China or anyone else for that matter. And so I want to see us regain optimism and confidence in America's ability to outcompete anyone. And we should have it. We have a lot of built-in advantages. Our higher education system is the envy of the world. We have relatively good demographics. Traditionally, we've been able to attract some of the best and brightest minds from around the world to come to the United States. We enjoy food and energy security. We have efficient capital markets. And we have peaceful borders. China, by contrast, is the hardest governance challenge in the world. It has demographic headwinds, an environmental hellscape in many parts of the country, an absence of self-correcting mechanisms like an independent judiciary or a free press that helps them identify when they're off track and get back on track. They have a regulatory environment that places a drag on innovation. They have inefficient capital markets. They have territorial disputes with many of their neighbors. And they have anxious near peers in Asia that are going to contest them if they seek to expand their primacy in the region. So given these contrasts, my argument is that we in the United States should be focusing on strengthening the drivers of our own competitiveness. We should be doing things like trying to fix our immigration system so that we have the best and the brightest minds still traveling to the United States. We need to repair our infrastructure. We need to up our game on health care and education to improve labor force participation, to increase productivity. We need to restore the iron triangle between academia, the private sector, and national labs that has proven so effective over the years at incubating 
breakthrough technologies. And we need to repair our relationship with our allies around the world, who I believe are assets and not liabilities for strengthening America's standing in the world. If we do these types of things, Kaiser, I'm very confident that we'll be able to compete with China or anyone else for that matter. Amen to that, Brother Haas. Ryan, during your time at NSC, um, there was a Bloomberg piece that came out that talked about China's frustration at not having a go-to person in the Obama administration for China policy. Um, Evan Medeiros, who you worked with at NSC, he, he gave a talk at the Bookworm in Beijing once, and I sort of, you know, boldfacedly asked him that question. You know, what did you make of that of that piece? And he got he was pretty ticked off, not at me, but obviously at, at the at the author uh, of the article. You wrote something, not precisely making the same case, but you know, but talking about the lack. You know, it wasn't of a go-to person, but the lack of senior China expertise, um, comparable, as you say, to the heirs of the founding generation. Oh, there's no comparable heirs. Let me just quote from here. You wrote, nowadays, there are no comparable heirs to the founding generation of policymakers. There are no senior statesmen or stateswomen who command broad deference and are willing to use it to make the case for advancing U.S.-China relations. The current generation of senior officials in the United States government have relatively little experience dealing with China less comfort focusing on the broader strategic picture, less inclination to craft long-term strategy, and a lower tolerance for working to solve problems with Beijing when they arise. What, what do we do about this? I mean, this is, this is it strikes me when, you, when I read that, I, I kind of, a chill went through me and I realized that you're, you're kind of right. Well, you are right. Well, well, Kaiser, um, I wish that there was an easy solution. My, what I, the argument that I was trying to make is that the founding generation you know, the Brzezinski's, the Kissinger's, Stape Roy, all these guys. Chas Freeman. Chas Freeman. And, you know, unfortunately, they were all guys back then, but I'm glad to say they aren't now. Um, they Well, it was Jan Barris. <laughs> yes. They understood that China was a strategic asset, not a liability, in the broader competition that uh, we were enduring with the Soviet Union. And, you know, it wasn't out of you know, affection for China that they felt it was in our interest to have a constructive relationship with China. It was because of a cold-blooded, cold-hearted calculation that that was the right thing to do. And they were willing to stake their reputation on that argument. That just, there aren't people that uh, are willing to make a similar case right now. And it's a real problem for us. Now, one thing I will say is that the Chinese do prefer to have a single point in the American government that they can use as their friends, that they can put pressure on as their friends to help solve their problems. And in the Obama administration, uh, to a certain extent, we wanted to deprive them of that single point at which uh, they could turn the dial and try to get them to serve their interest inside the administration. So it wasn't necessarily by default, it was in part by design that uh, we wanted to have a diversity of senior officials led by the president that was engaging with their Chinese counterparts. But where's that left us? I mean, are we significantly disadvantaged now for not having those people who are willing to stake reputation and and to sort of, um, you know, put it all? I mean, I look at at, at, at what the shambles that's, that's left right now I think about the strategic triangle and the logic of that that led us to, you know, that led to the initial opening in the early 1970s. And I read today about, you know, Xi Jinping in Russia talking about Putin, his new best friend. I mean, it's just goddamn depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. We've always wanted to make sure that we weren't the isolated party in the triangle between Russia, China, and the United States. Uh, Unfortunately, at the moment, we are. And uh, we're going to have to find a way to amend that. Christ. Uh, One of my favorite things that you've written was back in August of 2018. You wrote a piece called Principles for Managing U.S.-China Competition. And uh, I think it was great because you actually enumerate things that we can do. Uh, There were, you know, there were... There were actual practices and suggestions, um, good actionable advice. Uh, for example, you talked about you know bringing back no surprises, which I thought was a, a really good one. Can you talk about that idea and maybe a couple of the other principles that you advocate for, what we can actually do? Well, sure. Uh, I think that one of the things that we need to do is we need to settle in the United States on what type of China is in our interest and what type of relationship is in our interest. That, mm-hmm. Before we do anything with China, we need ourselves to come to terms with this. And, and, and we're not talking about a supine China that simply does everything that we want. <laughs> no, right. no. I think we need Although to. That's what they. What Bannon seems to. We need to recognize that uh, we're not going to be able to impose our will on the second largest economy and second most powerful country in the world. 
um, we aren't going to have moments of grand victory over China. It's going to be incremental, and it's going to be a struggle uh, for right. a very and long time. Right, and just to make sure that we're on the same page here, that uh, that doesn't mean surrendering the idea that we can ex- exercise any influence at all. No, not of at all. Not. I mean, because no. there are there are people who who make that argument, and I I don't I can't I'm not down with that either. I mean, I I, I understand the dangers of hubris, but at the same time, I think that the United States has an awful lot to offer. And uh, we there 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 are we have a moral responsibility in the world to nudge China in the in more in I think better directions. I, com- I have no no problem doing that. Right. I completely agree. I think that we still maintain the ability to to influence and shape China's decisions. Um, but my I guess my basic argument is that uh, we are not better off uh, with a outright hostile relationship with China. Right. Um, that doesn't serve our interests. It'll give us less security at higher cost. So I would like to see us come to terms around the fact that a stable, peaceful, prosperous China is in our interest. I don't think that that needs to be a quaint and outdated uh, view. Uh, I think that we will have a competitive relationship with China. That's uh, a given. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm very good with that. Uh, but we should also work to have a productive relationship with China. Uh, and in, in the last administration, you know, what we want, we're trying to do is create a more durable, resilient, productive relationship. So what that meant was um, trying, to, trying to manage the areas of competition and elicit more and better cooperation. Now, did China do everything that we wanted them to? Of course not. But at some point, we're going to have to find that balance, to restore that balance so that um, we, we can get China to do more of what we want them to do and more effectively manage the areas where we disagree. Uh, when I interviewed Chaz Freeman not too far from here uh, and not too long ago, uh, he talked about how Kissinger was a really big fan of Metternich and in the, the period after the Congress of Vienna, how his whole idea was to entangle uh, ent- entangle you know volatile revolutionary France into so many sort of international involvements that it would sort of neuter it. And that was his idea with China. And Freeman goes on to enumerate all these these things that we did in areas of scientific cooperation. I still think that is incredibly relevant today. You know, why don't we work together in in on the international uh, in in building a new international space station? Why don't we work together in? I mean, there, there's so much collaboration already to be built on. Uh, it just seems like utter folly at this point to try to decouple. Right. Yeah, we need to find new animating issues for the relationship, and they're they're out there. Uh, You already mentioned the International Space Station. Uh, Space exploration. We're both spacefaring nations. We would benefit each other by having some degree of cooperation. Climate, clean energy. Uh, Those are, yeah, and of Uh, course, global pandemics and health and uh, cyber cyber crime and cybersecurity. Right, and both countries are sort of navigating the crest of the wave of automation and artificial intelligence, which are going to have hugely disruptive social impacts for both countries. We can learn from each other. All of these things, if you think about the the technologies that are really driving the so-called fourth industrial revolution, autonomous vehicles, deep learning driven artificial intelligence, and which is of course related to that, all sorts of advanced robotics, and of course, in, in the life sciences, so much that we're doing right now uh, with gene editing, with you know, CRISPR-Cas9 technology, it's these two countries that are at the very forefront. And these are all places where there's an urgent need for interoperability, for ethical standards. And, and it's incumbent on these two countries to really talk these things through. I mean, we're just squandering an opportunity here if we, if we don't. It's... Right. Anyway, God, um, let's 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 uh, wrap this up with um, we, lest we forget that foreign policy. When we're talking about uh, countries as deeply intertwined as China and the United States, uh, that it has a major domestic component as well. Uh, something I'm personally extremely worried about are these allegations that are flying all over the place about Chinese influence operations, um, especially as they affect Chinese researchers and scientists. I mean, we saw what happened at, at the Anderson cancer center in, in Texas. We, we see, see what's happening right now, even at universities like my alma mater, you see Berkeley, where, uh, you know, letters are going out, you know, uh, warning uh, about Chinese researchers and, and, and this sort of thing. It's, it's, it's teetering on a new McCarthyism. And it, it really, it's fundamentally bothersome to me because I think this is going to tear the very civic fabric that we intend to defend. I mean, I keep using the same analogy. I, I think it's like we feel like we may have been exposed to a carcinogen 
And so we have prescribed for ourselves a heavy dose of, of chemo and, and radiation therapy, which is, of course, going to compromise our immune systems and, and leave us you know, vulnerable to all sorts of deadly diseases. There's no lump. There's no, there's no shadow on our lung. There's no indication that we actually have cancer. We just think we were exposed to a carcinogen. It's freaking crazy. Well, let me offer a thought so that we don't end on a dark note. All right. Uh, I, I, I will try to inject a note of optimism. I think that this could be a manageable issue. And let me tell you what I mean. I think that the United States could state clearly without any cost to ourselves that it's unrealistic for the United States to de- decide how China governs itself and expect in return that China will acknowledge it would be unacceptable to use coercive, corrupt, or covert means to seek to manipulate public attitudes in the United States or use tools of technology to sow disinformation. Um, we have to be prepared to accept that it is in bounds for Chinese overtly to promote their culture, their language, and their history. It's called public diplomacy. And, we, and it's what we do we around do better, the world yeah. uh, as well. But we should be able to find a way to build some barriers around what's in bounds and what's out of bounds. Uh, right now, uh, my worry is that the at the government-to-government level, the, the dialogue on this issue is just immature. And outside of government, the concern, as you described, is growing more and more acute. And it's going to lead us into some, some troubled waters. So I'm not trying to dismiss the significance of the concern. If the Chinese are doing things like uh, seeking to censor speech on college campuses mm-hmm. through students' groups, that's out of bounds. CSAS to report on other students. Yeah, that's it, out that, of bounds. Yeah, that, that it's a violation of, of America's free speech principles and values. No question. So we should have no qualms about calling out uh, the types of behaviors that we had, we we consider to be out of bounds. The but right we actors, should, of course, the right policy actors. Often, this is something that can be addressed at the level of the university administration, and the FBI doesn't need to be involved. Right, and and through more transparency and an active media, hopefully, we can, you know, find an equilibrium point on on this issue because it is a serious issue. It's something we should uh, pay close attention to, but. Yeah, a, a return to McCarthyism would be a tragic uh, outcome. You know, no, that is a good note to end on. <laughs> Ryan, I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Uh, your voice is just so essential right now. I'm really glad that uh, you are part of our Next 40 group, which listeners are going to hear a lot more about in months to come. Uh, let's move on to recommendations now. But before we do that, let me remind listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. Uh, take a moment, really do this, and subscribe to SubChina Access to start getting the daily newsletter delivered right to your inbox. Membership gets you an early version of this podcast, usually on Monday evenings, U.S. East Coast time, instead of on Thursday, having to wait all the way to Thursday. Um, plus, you get discounts on our conferences, uh, free admission to our live shows, which we do every month up in New York. And, of course, a berth aboard our Slack channel where you can harangue editors, myself included. Uh, you can do this live and, you know, as things happen, take part in our chats with our guests. Uh, we'd love to have Ryan actually come on and do one of our chats. Those are a lot of fun. Do sign up and show your support. Recommendations. Um, on, on to this section. Ryan, what do you have for our listeners for the week? My recommendation, uh, I have two. The The first oh, would, would be a book by Bill Burns that came out a while ago called right, The Back yeah. Channel, yeah, which yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. as a former diplomat myself, I just was inspired by reading. Uh, he is the embodiment of what diplomacy, good diplomacy should look like. Uh, and then uh, the soundtrack Hamilton uh, oh, is I love something that, yeah. that uh, my kids and I and my wife and I have been listening to on road trips, and uh, we, we've really enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. I mean, have you seen it? Have you actually seen Hamilton? Haven't seen the show yet. Yeah, neither have I. It's really frustrating. But um, I kind of have – I'm not allowed to, to to be too much of a fan because uh, my brother had a, a show on Broadway uh, that was actually like right across the street from Hamilton. And, you know, if it weren't for goddamn Hamilton, you know, his show maybe would have run longer than the 14 months that it ran. But it was a really good one with with George Takei, and it was called Allegiance. I'm actually going to go see a show um, next week that he was a producer on called Hades Town which is supposed to be really great. But yeah, Hamilton's a really fun soundtrack. Although I just having read 
uh, Joseph Ellis's founding brothers. I'm not a big fan. I got to say, I'm not a big fan of Ellis. I mean, as a person, he was kind of an asshole. I mean, he, Aaron Byrne was also an asshole. You know, who else was? I mean, there were a lot of them. Jefferson was a big old, I mean, what a jerk. Uh, but the one, the one who, who comes through with flying colors is John Adams. I mean, he, and he, he still to this day is kind of my favorite of the founding. Uh, speaking of musicals, have you ever seen 1776? No. Oh, you got to see that. Oh my God. That's just the, the, the greatest, you know, U.S. Revolutionary War <laughs> musical there is, but it's a great one. It should, I should have saved that one for my July 4th recommendation, but that, that's a great one. Uh, I saw that at Radio City Music Hall when I was, uh, uh, 10 years old uh, uh, at the Bicentennial. So Very cool. Fun. Anyway, uh, my recommendation for the day uh, is a wonderful collection of essays by, uh, really, he is my favorite writer, Michael Shabon. Uh, you know, he's, of course, the author of you know, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, of Telegraph Avenue, of Moonglow, uh, lots of, of other um, lovely books. Uh, this collection is called Pops, Fatherhood in Pieces, and it's kind of a sequel to his earlier Manhood for Amateurs, uh, which I also highly recommend. But Pops has some these, these these essays. I mean, some of you you might have read before. He he did a piece for GQ about Paris Fashion Week. He has this really kind of you know sartorially inclined um, young son who is kind of a genius when it comes to fashion. Really just quirky stuff. Uh, and he took him to Paris Fashion Week, and you know he was kind of bored out of his mind, but uh, he writes really, really well about, about you know, his son and his, his discovering of, of this. Um, it's really well observed, really, really wise. And, and like all of his books, they really speak to me in part because we're kind of close in age, uh, me and Shabon, and he uh, has like a lot of the same fanatical obsessions, like he's really into 1970s progressive rock music like I am. And there's like several, there's several uh, references in this book to Rush, the band Rush, which is uh, a big fan, including a, a li- lyric that's, that forms the title of one of his uh, chapters. It's called Conform or Be Cast Out, which is from the song Subdivisions, which I was just thrilled to see. It just made my heart leap a little bit. Anyway, these essays just got me right here. I'm motioning it at my heart right now. <laughs> Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time, man. Thank you, Kaiser. Yeah, this is going to be uh, really worth it. Uh, very excited to share this with the listeners. Uh, the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo, that's me, and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women, new voices, and top for top, and, of course, the Middle Earth Podcast about the culture industry in China. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.